0: I want to greet you again this evening in the name of Jesus. You know, without his power and presence here, we'd really be useless meeting, trying to come up with some plan for bettering our lives. I want to look again at uh, our thinking on pride, remembering our verse in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. For all these things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Do we tremble at the word of God this evening? Do we have a proper view of ourselves? And that's something we're going to look at in a more in-depth way as we go into the sermon this evening. So far we've looked at a haughty spirit, we've also looked at vanity, and self-protection. And tonight we wanted to focus a little more on a different kind of pride, it's called unapproachable pride, unapproachable. See, none of us are perfect, and um, therefore we have these faults. And once in a while, somebody gets their nerve up and they come and say something to us about those faults. Now, as, according to how much pride we have in our life or the way we let that pride rear its head is going to determine as to whether we will learn anything from that person approaching us. Unapproachable pride does not like to be corrected in any way. Doesn't matter; it's uh, just not interested in being corrected. Proverbs nine, verse seven and eight: He that reproveth a scorner giveth himself shame; he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. In verse 8 reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee rebuke a wise man and he will love thee and it it's it's an unfortunate thing when people are too proud when we allow our pride to get in the way between being of what we are and being reproved and and being helped in our Christian life because you know, it, it takes—it's quite a humbling experience when somebody comes to us and says, um, "There's an issue in your life that, you know, I, I just don't feel quite right about it. I'd like to talk to you about this a little bit. And can you, can you hear and understand where I'm coming from? Do you, do you recognize what I'm trying to come across with?" And and we get our hackles up and we don't talk to me about that. Think about your own problems. You've got a whole host of them, and we were quite able to point them out. God tends to be very confrontive in his dealings with those he loves. In Hebrews twelve, he says, um, uh, "Let's see. Yeah, I'll begin reading at verse five. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children: My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth." If ye endure chastening, God deal with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? Saying there that that God deals with us as sons, and he does it in a... uh, A manner of confrontation. Confrontation of sin by a godly person. I'm talking about by another godly person. Is the most effective, or it's a very, it's very highly effective at least, way to receive um, reproof if we allow it to happen. But if I'm too proud to accept what my brother says, and they may be wrong, okay, I'm, I'm going to admit that sometimes someone is, someone does uh, accuse another unjustly. That happens sometimes. You're probably not the only person that's ever happened to. But just suppose they're right. We should check it out. We should find out if that's if he's wrong or not. Um, think about Nathan and David. Think about what it took for Nathan to confront David. I don't know if Nathan feared for his life or not. He might have. But to, to have that love for our fellow man enough so that we will are willing to, to be the one to confront, but then, okay, that's done. Now, The person that has received the uh, reproof, how is he going to uh, answer to that? The Christian who is too high to receive reproof takes himself out of the enviable position of getting God's best for his life. And he's going to lose out spiritually. If we're too proud to be approachable by our fellow, fellow man, Proverbs 17.10 says, A reproof entereth more into a wise man than a hundred stripes into a fool. So, if we are good at taking reproof and uh, learning from it, being guided by it, it says we're wise. But if people have to do it over and over and over again and we never learn anything by it, it's basically saying, You're a fool. You're a fool. Okay. Someone wrote, pride intensifies all our other sins because we cannot repent of any of them without first giving up our pride. I'll read that again. Pride intensifies all our other sins because we cannot repent of any of them without first giving up our pride. Okay, the second one we want to look at is know-it-all pride. Certainly none of us would be classed that way right how do we come across when we are visiting with people and and talking and uh, uh, in a conversation with a uh, let's say I'm in a conversation with a group of men do I have to dominate the the conversation Um, regardless what's said I've got a better story uh, more interesting tale to tell it can come across that way the person who struggles with no-at-all pride, and not all of us do, but that person that does, is usually very talented, very gifted, very knowledgeable. Maybe reads the encyclopedia or Wikipedia or whatever-pedia you want. Um, he tends to think that he can do many things. Now, remember the haughty person was one that picked out one specific area that he was good at and he clung to that and just held on for dear life. But this person actually does have the brains to back, back things up. And he is very gifted. He's very knowledgeable in, in what he's talking about. And usually the rest of us are stumped and we can't argue with him because we don't know enough to do so, even if we'd like to he ends up having a distrust in many other people's, many of the other, others, he has a, a distrust in their abilities because he's seen that, well, they really don't know what they're talking about, and I do. And God allows people to have many gifts. Some of us only have one or two. We all have some. Don't, don't tell me you don't have any gifts. Um, but this person here realizes or thinks within himself that I have pretty well reached the zenith. I've got more than anyone else here. Nobody is quite as capable or knowledgeable as I am. If they just let me be in control, I know how it should be done. Therefore, he does not like to submit to leadership because he thinks he could do a better job. And this arrogant attitude then causes him to rebel against those in authority over him. He tends to think that people have little to teach him. He's surprised when someone else comes up with a good idea and usually he discounts it because eh, he's not sure it's really a good idea. And if he talks long enough, you may find out that your idea turned out to be his idea because he figured out a way to twisted around and yeah it was a good idea then Proverbs 26 12 says seest thou a man wise in his own conceit there is more hope of a fool than of him Isaiah 5 21 woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight Whoa. you know I talked about Sometimes we'd like to argue with somebody like that, but we can't because we don't have enough knowledge to do so. Someone else wrote, he says, and he was talking about pride in general. He says, it is very difficult to compete with someone who chooses to be last. So if we just relax and get over it, um, whether you're the know-it-all person or you're the know-it-all person's buddy... <laughs> Uh, if we just relax and be willing to be last, be willing to be the least knowledgeable person there, then no one else will try to compete with you, right? It is very difficult to compete with someone who chooses to be last. So tonight we're looking at, we're thinking, again, we'll just recap that. Unapproachable pride. I'm too proud to be approached about sin in my life or problems in my life, faults in my life and also know-it-all pride where I'm very gifted and I, I believe that I've got the answers for all of life's problems. You can turn to Luke chapter 15 again. I think we're going to get done with this portion of scripture this evening. But we're going to try to cram a bunch in again. Uh, We're going to look at three marks of stubbornness and three marks of self-righteousness. And it's all bundled up in one person. So, Mark chapter 15, and we can go to verse 25 and begin reading there. Let's just read that. Section to refresh your memories. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fat calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead, and is alive again, was lost, and is found. Before we go into that scripture, I've got some questions to ask you. Where do you feel the most comfortable? What kind of environment are you the most comfortable in? And I need to do a little more explaining. It's a sign of spiritual decay when we're uncomfortable in a healthy environment. It's a sign of spiritual decay when we're un- when we're uncomfortable in a healthy environment. I brought this sermon at home some time ago and one of my fellow pastors commented as we stood at the door later he said, "You know, the opposite's true too." Lenin he said, "If you're comfortable in an unhealthy environment, that's right. That's another sermon. But taking the, um, the idea of this elder brother, he's in a great environment, and it's obvious he's uncomfortable there. He finally spews out and boils over his anger that's been simmering below the surface, and it comes out, and it's very obvious that he, I don't know if he's jealous of the younger brother, but he was uncomfortable in a very healthy, safe environment. And if you and I find ourselves to be uncomfortable in a healthy environment, we need to really search what's wrong with us. Now, our natural tendency is to say, well, I'm not so sure it's so healthy around here. But let's be careful about that when we find ourselves uncomfortable in a healthy environment there's spiritual decay taking place how can a blessed person, a person that has so many blessings become so ungrateful those are some questions to ask ourselves as we think or look into this story tonight when Jesus was telling this story there was a group of Pharisees and scribes listening in. I don't know who all was he was talking to it does name some of the people or gives some indication of that at the beginning of the chapter. I think there's publicans and sinners for to hearing, but the Pharisees and scribes were there murmuring about it. And it's very likely that this last section was given for the, those hearers that were Pharisees and scribes. They were sure that they alone could enter the kingdom of heaven and these others weren't even worthy to try. If you'll recall from the other evening, we said that there was a story back then about very similar to this, and, but it ended in such a way that the father turned the prodigal son away and said, you've made your bed, lie in it, go away. But we had these self-righteous experts from the, uh, that were in the Jewish law, and they were quite sure that they alone understood and had things figured out. They, were, they had no it all pride in their life. And they cared little about those lost in sin around them. It mattered not to them. They were saved. They were the seed of Abraham. They had it. If you look back to verse 2, they were condemning Jesus for welcoming sinners and eating with them. And the three parables that Jesus gave in this passage are to help them understand that they need compassion for the lost. And I hope that that's something that's in our hearts. When we see a person that's obviously living in sin, at least from outward appearances, what is our response? Slip over to the other side of the road, pass by on that side. Or do we feel compassion for those who are lost? This older brother remained at home. He obeyed the rules. He stayed out of trouble. And pride got a good hold in his life. You can tell it from what he says there. He said, I've never transgressed. Now, that's really hard to believe. Any of you got that record in your life? I've never transgressed. Wow. That was a lie right there, probably. I'm sure it was. Outwardly, he was in compliance with his father. But inwardly, he too was far from home. Both of these young men were slaves. The one was a slave by economic plight and he was working and toiling in the hog pen. But the older one was a slave too and that was by perception. And we'll dig into that a little bit more here later. The prodigal's father shows us a path of forgiveness and how we are to respond to those who have actually wronged us but are asking for forgiveness and how that we forgive. There was a man, his name was General James Oglethorpe. He was founder of the colony of Georgia. He lived during the time of John Wesley and one time he bluntly told John Wesley, he said, Preacher, I never forgive. Wesley replied, Then, sir, I hope you never sin. Because that's the bridge, the bridge that we build of forgiveness is sometimes the bridge that we ourselves need to cross when we ask forgiveness. Also, and if we harbor an unforgiving older brother attitude, we cannot be in fellowship with God. The father tra- treated both sons with the same tenderness. His riches were always at his first son's disposal, but were apparently left unused. I mean, that, that really gripped me as I thought about this. That. This boy was so bent out of shape because good things were happening to his brother and he was sure that he didn't deserve it and he didn't. But he was bent out of shape at dad because you've never thrown a party for me. That's like the dad was saying, You never asked for one, the assets were always at your disposal. You know, Sometimes I think we, we live along in our Christian lives on, on a bare bones diet or something and we gripe and groan at God because he's not performing and, and doing things that we feel like he should be doing in our life and it's because we haven't asked. We haven't availed ourselves of the riches that are there. We have only ourselves to blame if we do not utilize that which God has provided us. We have the unlimited assets of his grace. Okay, looking a little bit in depth at what <coughs> these verses say. In Verse twenty-eight it says, "And he was angry." That word in the Greek would come through as in a rage, much stronger than just what we think of that he was angry. He was beside himself. This is this is it. This is and it, you know, like I said, he boiled over. He blew up. And it says in that verse that his father came out and entreated him. That word entreated is much stronger in the Greek also. It means to beg or plead. And I think, let me see, is is it that word or is there another one? I believe it's that word there that means that he did it over and over. It was a repeated process. Please come in, come in. Over and over and over. The father was pleading with him. Verse 29, though, there's some, some words to observe there. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. That word serve there would have the idea of I have been a slave to you. Uh, to me, all of a sudden, it just changed that whole verse when I understood that. He said, I Dad, I've slaved for you all these years. When we think of serve, it's just it's much milder. But the Greek would, would bring forth the idea of that, that of a slave or in bondage. Dad, I've been stuck here on this silly farm and i slaved away for you all this, these years. And I've never got anything out of it. The kid that is mentioned there, He's just, he just saying, I, I haven't even had a small goat. And here you're killing a fatted calf. How easy it is to compare our lot in life and and always be sh- being sure that somehow life isn't very fair to us and somebody else is getting a better deal than we are. Notice another thing in verse 30. This isn't so much about a word, but a phrase that he uses. Where he says, But as soon as this thy son was come. Why didn't he say, This my brother? He didn't want to even be associated with this fellow that showed up from the bad section of town. He called it he told his father, he said, It's your son. sometimes we jokingly say that to one another as man and wife, that that's my wife's child there or something like that when they're not behaving properly, or my wife would say the opposite, maybe. But this is serious here. This was a slap in that father's face. He didn't say, now when my brothers come. He said, this thy son showed up. Uh, completely disassociated himself with that brother as we read over this there are three things that that come out the older brother marks time he remembers when he left how he's coming back and that I've never received what I should have not thinking that he's he's basically the sole owner of the farm at this point I'm not sure where he got his logic but he marks time and that's something that, that comes through very often in people that are dissatisfied with where they're at they count the days and the hours and the weeks and years that they've been stuck in this supposedly terrible situation and we mark time Number two, he tracks behavior. I don't know how, but he seemed to know what kind of shenanigans his brother was pulling on the other side of town or wherever it was. I guess it was in a far country. On the other side of the country. East to west coast, I guess. Somehow he tracked behavior. Word had got back what his brother was up to. And he kept track of those things. And he... He wallowed in the bitterness of it enjoyed it. Number three, the older brother feels entitled. And there again, I don't quite understand why when he's going to inherit the, the whole farm at this point. But he doesn't want his brother, his father's son, to receive anything. And this thing of bringing him back in and acting like he's a son again, well, he probably wouldn't have even allowed him to be a hired servant. And Jesus was giving this picture to try to help the Pharisees to see where they stood. And I think it's a good lesson for us to think, you know, we need to not just think of this in terms of the Pharisees and scribes. We need to think about it for us because I think this section of this parable touches us sometimes a lot more closely than some of the other parts do. Because of this man's stubbornness, he would not go in at at the beginning. Now, one thing I really like about this story is that at the end, it leaves you hanging. You don't really know how the story ends. You know that the prodigal son was brought back home and Received with joy and happiness and all that. But how did it end for the older brother? We really don't know that. I think Jesus did that for a purpose to make us think and say, if I was in that spot, how would I respond next? Would I listen to the Father's pleading? Or would I continue in my stubbornness? Because of his stubbornness, he imprisons, imprisons himself behind a wall of loneliness It had to be a terrible place to be is outside on the porch or barnyard or whatever. And you could hear the party going on inside. And wallowing in the bitterness of what your father's son had done. And you won't go in. Okay. Three points about his uh, stubbornness. Look at yourself. Ask yourself, what kind of person am I here? The older brother was a selfish and ungrateful son. He looked at his father and instead of thanking him for all the things that he had provided for him and done for him throughout his life, all the things that he had received, he started complaining about the things he didn't have. And I really, again, I'm not sure that he couldn't have had them. I think he enjoyed his misery so much that he... I'm not asking for it. Dad's going to have to offer that type of thing. His father reminded him, he says, son, everything I have is yours. What are you talking about here? But right now, right at this moment in his life, the main thing he's focusing on is the thing he, he, he doesn't have, and that's, we only had one fatted calf, and you just killed that for my, your son. And I'm not getting a part of it. And I'm not going in and taking part of it. I guess one way to have had part of that fatted calf is to get himself inside and partake in the party. So here he is, not thinking about all the good things that he had in life, but focusing on one thing he doesn't have. We're blessed with so many things in our, the, the day and time in which we live. And yet, over and over, we find ourselves dissatisfied because we see something that we can't have. And, we're, and, and because we're yearning for that thing that we can't have, we miss the blessings. We miss being grateful for the blessings that are coming our way every day. Number two, he was unhappy and unfeeling. He considered that he was a slave. I've been slaving away for you all these years. Like I said, it was like a slap in his father's face. I don't really know what he could have said. I mean, he was out to hurt his dad. and I'm sure he was hoping it would spill over to his brother also. I'm sure his father was pleased with his obedience and his willingness to stay with the farm and work and help the situation there. And for this boy to come across and say, I've been a slave all these years. I've just been slaving away for you, Dad, and, and it's like bondage. I hate it. It was like a slap in his father's face. Whenever things go wrong in our relationship with God, it starts showing up in other areas of our life also. And again, we just, we sit around and we think and think about the things we can't have instead of counting our blessings and considering what we do have. Number three, the older brother was unloving and unforgiving. He says, this son of yours, you didn't even call him a brother. And, and if we think about this and, and think about the story in its entirety, why did, what, what thought may the younger son come home. He's sitting down there in the pig pen, and he's thinking, what, what thought? Oh, I'm hungry. At home, the least of the servants gets three meals a day. Now I'm using my imagination there a little bit, but you get the idea? He, the younger son suddenly sees his father as the most generous boss, let alone father, that the world has ever known. My dad is a most generous person. There's a slight chance he'll hire me on and then I'll at least have food to eat. So the younger son's perspective changed drastically. We know what his perspective was when he left home, yes. But as he gets down there and he gets at the bottom of the pit, there in the hog pen, his perspective changes, changes and suddenly dad is a very, very generous person. But think about the, the older son at home who is sitting there saying, Dad's a slave driver. I'm in bondage here. I hate this farm. It's disgusting. My dad is a stingy old miser. They were talking about the same person. They were thinking about the same person. The older son always had enough food to eat. He always had... Nice clothes to wear. There were servants to take care of the everyday needs. And yet he felt that his father was stingy. Sometimes we think, you know, we're talking about stubbornness right now. Sometimes we think that stubbornness... Is one of those sins that doesn't affect us very much. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, Paul is speaking there and he says, uh, Let me see, do I have that written down? Maybe I better turn to that. Romans 2, verse 5. start repeating verse 3 and thinkest thou this O man that judgest them which do such things and doest the same that thou shalt escape the judgment of God or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance but after thy hardness and that can be translated stubbornness but after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God God's Spirit will not always strive with man. And when we are stubborn and we push against the facts and the truth and resist good and resist God, it is harboring up against ourselves wrath against the day of wrath. And God, in the day of judgment, the sinner will experience the wrath of God. One day... God's wrath will be revealed the day of judgment, and it will all be because of stubbornness on people's hearts. Okay, let's also look at some marks of self-righteousness that we can find in this young man's life. Again, thinking of the, of the phrase where he said, I've never been given a party. That's, a, that's very typical of a self-righteous person in saying that life isn't fair. I've, I've suffered much in my life. I have been ignored, I've been forgotten. Um, a feeling of unfair treatment is always the initial mark of a self-centered attitude, self-righteousness. It is a sign of crushed pride, of wounded ego, and it reveals the centrality of self. And it comes across just like it did in this story here. I'm not going to play. I'm going to take my marbles and I'm going to go home. I, it's not fair. I, I'm, I'm done. I'm out of here. A self-righteous person tends to respond in anger to a situation where they feel like they're being treated unfairly. Instead of responding in humility and actually seeing if we can see another side to the situation and see how it really it really looks to God, to other people. The second mark is an overinflated view of self. Self-righteousness is always quick to have self-praise. Think about this the story that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the publican standing in the temple, I believe it was. And the Pharisee said, you know, I tithe every so often and I, I uh, pray, I, I do all sorts of good things. And I'm not, as this fellow over here, um, full of self-praise. A self-righteous person is that way. When we have to praise ourselves to give ourselves encouragement, isn't that a, a terrible situation to find ourselves in? From the older son's perspective, he felt that all he had been doing all of his life was just contributing to the father's uh, kingdom. Farm, we'll say it that way. He never, he never once recognized what his father had done for him. How good he had it. How much his father had taught him over the years. His father was grooming him to be taking over the farm at some point, And he never recognized any of that. Again, notice that he says, I never disobeyed. Uh, how, how did it say there? Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And as you read this and you hear that boiling over, you can believe that even if he obeyed always on the outside, there were times that he rebelled on the inside. And he didn't repent of it. That there was rebellion within his heart, and it was simmering and boiling just below the surface. And even though he didn't ask for his part of the inheritance and take off for the far country, it it almost seems to me like he wished he could. His view of himself is that of being completely and totally in the right. And that is another mark, or that is part of the same mark of self-righteousness when we have an overinflated view of self. The third mark of a self-righteous person is we blame other people for perceived problems in our life. We're sure that it's other somebody else's fault. He says, this son of yours, again, we, we make mention of that, and you can you can hear it, Dad. It's your fault that my sibling took off and went the way he did. He was out uh, living life up. It's your son. It's your problem. He has no compassion nor care for his brother as I said before I don't think he would have if it had been up to him I don't think he would have hired him back let him come back as a as a member of the family you ever think about it how Jesus spoke towards people that were self-righteous Jesus could get pretty sharp with his words with self-righteous people he could treat a uh, adulterous woman, um, a drunken tax collector or whatever, with very tender, compassionate words. But it went, when it came to people like the Pharisees that were self-righteous, he called them hypocrites. He called them, uh, there, there was some uh, harsh words given trying to wake them up to the sin that they found themselves so deep in. Someone wrote, when he faces self-righteous Pharisees in their smug complacency, his words burn and sear and scorch. And the problem with this sin of being self-righteous is that it's so easily disguised. It's so easily hidden as something that's justifiable. It's okay. Because I am right. You know, part of us is, is wallowing in that, or, or exalting ourselves in, a, in this unapproachable pride. We, nobody can approach us about this problem. And the other part of us thinks we know it all, and we, we're justified in the attitude that we have. In my short life, I've watched several people that have embraced bitterness. That's a terrible thing. I just. And I have yet to figure out how to really work with it. Not that I'm some great counselor or something like that, but to work with bitterness in a person's life when it, they enjoy it so much. They enjoy being bitter. Somehow it tastes good to them, but it always leaves a bitter aftertaste, so you have to take another dose because they think it's sweet at first. And the more doses they take, the more bitter they become. Let's stop being so angry with people who sin. I don't know if that was part of the problem here or not, but that happens to all of us when we we have a self-righteous attitude. We get very upset with other people when they sin. When we sin, you're all supposed to forgive me. When, when, When London sins, everybody here needs to forgive me because, you know, I'm not quite perfect, but close. Um, But if the rest of you sin, oh, that's a different story, and you guys are a terrible bunch of people. Lost people are going to sin because they're lost. Christians are going to sin because they're not perfect. Let's refuse to be angry with people who sin differently than we do. I found that quote, and it just really struck home to me. Don't be angry with someone who sins differently than you do. Just because you don't have a problem with that sin issue in your life, you've never struggled with that, you've never fought that battle, doesn't mean somebody else isn't fighting that battle either. They need our love and compassion and care. They need to know that we care about them and that we want to help. That we're willing to forgive, that we we're willing to be part of the party. Sometimes I think that people in our circles don't repent, don't confess, and and a lot of times it is this because we fear the consequences. And yeah, there are consequences. There's the law of sowing and reaping, that sort of thing. But maybe they've. From experience, they know that not everybody received a welcome home. I don't know. I hope that's never been the case here. And many times it's our overinflated imagination taking over or Satan working through it and saying, they'll never take you back if they find out what you've really done. They'll, they'll, They'll never... You might as well go to another community and start over. You're going to confess that. And I hope that wouldn't be the case for any of us as Christians as we try to help each other in the Christian life. That we would respond like this older brother and stand out there and boil over with resentment towards this person who lived a life of sin. And it's like we're jealous of them when we should be rejoicing and being glad. That sinner has come back to the fold. I had a story I wanted to read halfway through. I hate to miss a story, so we're going to read that and then we'll come back for a few more thoughts. This is called Roger the Lost Sheep. There was great distress among the sheep. Little Wally, the son of prominent flock members Drusilla and Arthur, was missing. The panic had begun in early afternoon when he, when he did not return from play. Soon, though, the shepherd found out that Wally was gone. And about nightfall, he set out to search for him. Everybody knew and liked little Wally, and the whole night while the shepherd searched, nobody slept a wink. Nobody, that is, except for Roger. Even by sheep standards, Roger was a black sheep. Among other things, Roger had a very unpleasant greeting. Bah. When it came time to move from one pastor to another, Roger always stayed at the very back of the flock and complained. And when it came time to be sheared, Roger would kick and thrash about so that it took twice as long to shear him as any other sheep. So it wasn't surprising that while the rest of the flock stayed up, saying kind words to Drusilla and Arthur, giving them encouragement, Roger slept like a log. Some weeks later, as everybody slept, a wolf crept up on the fold. He noticed that while all the other sheep were sort of clumped together, one of them, Roger, of course, was off by himself alone. The wolf grabbed Roger by the scruff of the neck and began to drag him away that he might eat him. Roger awoke and began bleeding in such a loud, harsh voice that it hurt the wolf's sensitive ears. He also thrashed around so hard the wolf eventually decided that trying to kill him and eat him up was not worth the effort. The only trouble was Roger was out in the middle of nowhere with no clue of where he was. He began to appreciate now that while the other sheep were at best a necessary evil, the shepherd had been a good and valuable friend. The shepherd had shown him to fresh new pastures and led him to cool clear streams and had, until the present moment anyway, kept him safe but now he was out in this rocky, barren plain with no idea how to get to food or water and no hope of finding the rest of the flock. He tried to go to sleep, but he kept dreaming about wolves and jackals and hyenas and about starving to death. Oh, well. He had lived alone and only figured that he would die alone. He dozed on and off, and about the time the sun was coming up, he heard heavy, deliberate footsteps. Probably a bear. Well, at least it would be quick. He closed his eyes and waited for his neck to be torn limb from limb. Meanwhile, back at the fold, things were hopping. A few of the sheep, who were light sleepers, had stirred just in time to see that the shepherd was leaving and figured something was up. The sheep ran the facts to their little sheep brains and came up with only one conclusion. Somebody was missing. Like a brush fire, the news flashed through the herd. Somebody's missing. Somebody's missing. All the parents checked their children. All the husbands checked their wives. All the wives checked their husbands. And everybody checked on elderly relatives. All present and accounted for. That was odd. Why would the shepherd leave us if no one was missing? They ran it through their little sheep brains again. He's abandoned us. The shepherd has abandoned us. Within minutes, everybody had heard of their abandonment, and the fold was in a blind panic. The frenzy carried on until well after sunup when Osgood, one of the particularly sharp-eyed sheep, saw the shepherd coming over a distant hill. The sheep rejoiced. They gambled and frolicked and bleated with joy even greater than they felt when little Wally was returned. But their celebration didn't last long. There on the shepherd's shoulder... It was Roger. They had done their nose count, but Roger had alienated all the rest of the flock so badly that nobody even thought to look for him. The sheep were dumbstruck. What was the big idea? The shepherd had left all the good, cooperative, well-meaning sheep to go rescue an obnoxious, unpleasant, antisocial one. Finally, Arthur was appointed to take the flock's complaint to the shepherd. They had it all written out. Whereas, some days ago, the sheep were left alone to fend for ourselves and... Whereas we were given no indication that the shepherd intended to return, and whereas the uncertainty over the shepherd's return caused serious distress amongst us, and whereas all this distress was caused over sheep that really nobody really even hardly really liked very much in the first place, really even hardly, the sheep had some trouble with the wording of this part, therefore be it resolved that we the sheep do strongly protest our abandonment on the night in question, that we demand a full explanation of the reasons for said abandonment, and that we demand an apology for such thoughtless and irresponsible action on the part of the shepherd. We demand justice. Signed, the flock. When the shepherd received the message, he called a meeting of the sheep and responded to each of the items in turn. Yes, it's true. I left the flock all alone a few nights ago, and you were left to fend for yourselves, but nobody seemed to mind when I left you alone to go search for Wally. Yeah, but that was different, answered Chester the sheep, but he was shushed. As to the part about not knowing whether you've been abandoned, well, frankly, I'm a little surprised at all of you. "'Have I ever abandoned you before? "'Haven't I always protected you from wolves "'and taken you to fresh pastures and clear streams? "'I never abandoned you before. "'Why would I start now?' "'Yeah, but this is different,' insisted Mildred to the sheep. "'She too was shushed. "'And finally, as to this part about it being unfair, "'what was unfair about it? "'Wouldn't I have done the same thing for any of you?' "'Well,' said Herman the sheep, "'going out and saving all the rest of us, that's one thing. "'But, well, you put all the rest of us in jeopardy for him?' He motioned over to Roger, who, true to form, was asleep, snout, snoring loudly, far away from the others. "'That's what really bothers us,' said Arnold the sheep. "'Why didn't you just let him take his chances? "'He didn't deserve to get saved. "'It's not fair.' "'And for once, though he probably didn't know it, one of the sheep told the truth. "'Half of it, anyway. "'Roger did not deserve to get saved. "'It was not fair. "'Of course, the other half of the truth is none of the other sheep deserved to get saved either. "'They all deserved to be left to take their chances.' But they didn't have to. The shepherd looked after them and rescued them when they needed it. This would probably be a much more satisfying story if I were to tell you that Roger's experience changed his life profoundly. And from that day forward, he went on to become a model sheep, cooperative and appreciative and obedient. But he didn't. He got a little better for a while. Then he tapered off. The only real difference anyone could tell was that he didn't complain as much while moving from pasture to pasture. And he didn't thrash around quite as much when he got sheared. Roger remained, to the end of his days... A sheep wholly undeserving of the shepherd's rescue. We're all undeserving. All of us are undeserving of the grace of God. But there's plenty of salvation for everybody. The good sheep, the bad sheep, and all of us in between. So as we think about this story... That we've discussed this evening about the other prodigal son, actually wasn't a prodigal; he stayed at home. But uh, his attitude about his brother, his stubbornness, and re- re- refusing to see the good in life that God had blessed him with, the many things that he was saved from as a Christian. Living for God and enjoying the favor of his his father in this story or as we enjoy the favor of Christ living within us. And yet we foster bitter, angry attitudes towards others. Notice two things about the father again here. This father came out to meet the older son just like or in a, in a comparative way to the way he came out to meet the younger son. Yes, there was a difference in the way it was done. But he comes out and meets with him. And he pleads with him and asks him to come in. And God is pleading with each of us if we have alienated ourselves in any way, even though we've done all that we could do, or we thought we could do, to be good and to be right on the outside. Yet is there rebellion? Is there anger? Is there bitterness simmering just below the surface in our hearts? Maybe we've never accepted Christ. Maybe Christ is knocking at your heart's door and asking you to please come in, please let him in and establish a relationship with you. You know, Jesus loves each of us, just like in the story about Wally and Roger, the lovely, the unlovely. And he calls for each of us to be his children and to follow him and be safe in the fold. The second thing about the father is that he offered grace to this older boy just like he offered grace to the younger boy. You're always with me. All that I have is yours. There's, in our relationship with Jesus Christ, there's untold blessings to be had. And we grump and gripe because we think life is unfair and somehow somebody else is getting a better deal than we are. The Father has enough grace for each person that's here tonight. He's looking for prodigal people. He's looking for proud people. He welcomes sorry sinners and smug saints. It doesn't matter really what classification you're in. Jesus is knocking and asking you to be part of his kingdom and to allow him to love you. And take away the bitterness and anger and sins in your life.